You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Old Testament reading is Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. I'm an avid student of spin. You know what spin is, right? Uh, well, first off, it's a remarkable physical property. Have you ever seen someone who can do tricks with a top or with a yo-yo, right? They can make it get up and dance and hover and defy gravity. Um, if you haven't, make sure that when you go home you look it up on YouTube. There's really some incredible things that people can do. But of course, spin is also something that we can do to the truth, right? We can also make the truth get up and dance for our own purposes. Um, there's so many places that you can find spin. For instance, in advertising. In 2011, Taco Bell was sued over its use of the phrase, seasoned beef. It turns out that the main seasoner in their seasoned beef is oat filler. Uh, another place you can find spin, to, uh, sad to say, is sometimes in Bible commentaries. And I've learned over the years that if a commentary starts a sentence with the words certainly, or of course, or without doubt, what follows is usually dubious. Um, then, of course, there's politics, right? Home to linguistic debates over the meaning of the word is, um, and where mistakes were made, but no one ever seems to actually be culpable. Um, here's a story I found on the internet. The story goes that there was a politician running for office, and the opposition dug up some dirt on an unsavory great uncle who had emerged, was captured as a horse thief, 
escaped from jail, went on to rob trains, was recaptured, and put to death by hanging. When the press asked for a response from the campaign about this unsavory connection, they received the following statement. The individual in question was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with the Montana Railroad. Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to government service, finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation. In 1889, he passed away during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. In perhaps an added bit of irony, uh, the story has been circulated on the internet and ascribed to at least seven different candidates from uh, both political parties, uh, none of whom it seems to actually apply to. Well, spin is all around us, isn't it? Right? We find it very difficult to tell the truth when the truth is uncomfortable. You know, we're more willing to sort of bend it for an angle. Well, in our psalm today, David has run up against some of these sorts of spin doctors, folks who use their words as weapons to manipulate other people. To give us some context, this psalm, Psalm 12, is one of a group of seven psalms that follow after Psalms 9 to 10. Um, and these seven psalms unpack themes in Psalms 9 to 10. So you'll find like a word or a phrase in Psalms 9 to 10 that then gets a longer unpacking in these later psalms. One of those phrases um, from Psalm 10 is this statement by the wicked, there is no God. And so in these psalms that go on afterwards, we find an unpacking of this theme. What does it look like when you live life as if there was no God? And in this psalm, Psalm 12, um, we zoom in on what happens uh, when you live life as if there is no God to your dealing with the truth, you begin to think that you are the master over the truth, that you can use your words to turn it any way you want. And so as we look at this psalm, I want us to see three points. First, the words of the wicked are lying words. The words of the wicked are lying words. Second, God's words are pure words. God's words are pure words. And third, we're going to see how this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus, God's ultimate word. So, point one. The words of the wicked are lying words. The psalm starts with a pretty bleak portrayal of David's situation, right? Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. The faithful the God-fearing have dwindled away to nothing. As the psalmist looks at the community around him, all that he can see is the wicked. At the end of the psalm, in verse 8, he says, On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. I can't help but read that and think of like a zombie movie, right? Where a small band of survivors has to fight their way through this horde of undead as their numbers are slowly whittled down. Right? Wickedness has outpaced justice and righteousness, and the psalmist feels trapped, cut off, and surrounded. And what particular mark of wickedness does the psalm focus on? Well, it's deception, lies. Look at verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, 
With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So the focus here is on deception. Lies have become so widespread that everyone lies to his neighbor and his neighbor lies right back to him. Um, The psalm zooms in further and specifically picks out two kinds of deception. Flattery and boasting. Let's talk about flattery first. Now, flattery is using insincere compliments to manipulate somebody. It means having, as the psalm says, a double heart. Two hearts. There's the heart that you claim to have when you tell somebody about what you think and feel, and then there's the heart that you actually have, what you actually think and feel about that person. Um, Flattering lips here is literally smooth lips, right? Like smooth talk, spin, you know, the art of a con man. Um, The flatterer is like someone who fattens up a pig, right? They may make their victim feel good, but it isn't for their victim's real good. It's because they have an ulterior motive. A flatterer never has his victim's true good in mind. Rather, he manipulates them. Rather than treating them as an end in themselves, he treats them as a means to getting what he wants. Very often, the flatterer is just waiting for their chance to stab the victim in the back. Boasting, on the other hand, is when we flatter ourselves. It's this deception turned inwards, a delusion where our opinion of ourselves runs amok. Listen to the words of the boasters in this passage. With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Children, have you ever lied before? Um, how, how, how does it go when you lie, right? Um, it seems like a good option in the short term. You know, maybe you, you break something that belongs to your parents and you think, oh, if I don't admit to it, then I'll get away with it. But how does it usually turn out, right? Usually, you get found out, and then you're in even more trouble, right? Because now you've broken the thing and you've lied about it. But at first, lying seems like the right strategy, right? How does it feel when you get away with a lie? Um, when you make up some story or tell a scheme, and, and it's, it works. Um, it feels powerful, doesn't it? It feels like you have control, like you can manipulate other people like puppets. That is, until it all falls apart and you find yourself trapped in your own lie. The boasters in the psalm have been enchanted by this power that lying gives to them. Their tongues and their lips are the weapons with which they can conquer anyone. And this prideful boasting leads to a rejection of all authority. Who is master over us, they say. Listen to those words. Who is master over us? It's quite the power trip, isn't it, right? Of course, they've forgotten about the master of the universe. In their boasting, they've put themselves in the place of God, whom no one can tell, them, whom no one can tell what to do. They've made themselves the autonomous masters of their own universe. I think this is one of those Bible passages that really speaks to our present historical context really well. Um, we live in a cynical age, don't we? Where we, we don't really trust words, right? Um, you see, from the 17th century onward, the Enlightenment tended to exalt the human individual as the source of meaning. Uh, after the Reformation and the wars of religion, people didn't trust the church anymore, and so they said, maybe human reason can be the measure of all truth. But then, in the last century or so, we lost our faith in human reason. 
And so now we've become very skeptical of this human power to shape the meaning of words. Uh, we've learned from philosophers like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault that words are slippery, that they don't always mean what they seem to mean, and that claims to knowledge and truth uh, are very often masks for power grabs. Words and ideals are just so much fake news, something the powerful use to manipulate for their own secret aims. And let's hear the truth in that before we critique it, right? If sinful humanity really is, as the psalmist claims, that will be an accurate description most of the time. Meaning really is fluid, and words really are deceptive to the extent that the person speaking is deceptive and double-hearted. The problem, though, comes to be when we buy into this philosophy, that this is the only way it can be. Perhaps it's even good if we, if we are the ones who have the power to make our own truth, if we are the final arbiters for what words mean. And we do hear that voice in our culture, right? Uh, that we are the ones who get to choose what our religion is going to be, what our morals are, what our sexuality is, what our gender is. Um, there are a lot of voices telling us that you are the one who decides what is true for you and what works for you, and fewer voices telling us that we need to submit to God's design and what God has to say about what our lives ought to be like. So this passage is a challenge for our culture. But what about, what about you tonight? How are you tempted to bend truth to suit your own purposes? How are you tempted to flatter others and yourself? Maybe your workplace is a place where you're tempted to use dishonest means to get ahead, to tell your boss just what they want to hear, even if it's not quite true, or to put others down who might get in your way. Or maybe you're looking for the approval of a teacher, whether you're at school or headed to seminary. Maybe it's professor worship that you're tempted towards. Or perhaps it's your friendships, which are like that. Friendships that are all about saying nice things to each other and being nice giving even insincere compliments just to keep the peace. Now, let me be clear. I'm not against compliments in relationships, okay? Words of affirmation and encouragement are an important part of any healthy relationship. So, so please don't go away here from here thinking the pastoral intern told me that I shouldn't compliment my wife or my friends or anything like that. The problem comes when we use compliments to manipulate. When our compliments are no longer aimed at God's glory and the other's good, but instead are aimed at something else, maybe getting the other person to like me, or getting them to compliment me back in return, or maybe my real motive is getting them to do something for me. Ask yourself, are your friendships, or your dating relationship, or your marriage, places where you are telling the truth to each other? Are they places where you are genuinely seeking each other's good, not just seeking to make each other feel good. One way you might be able to tell if that's the case is if you're able to have conversations about hard things, things that aren't nice and fun but that have to be talked about. Are you avoiding conflict in your relationships, papering over the difficult parts, or are you seeking to be honest, to confront sin and to speak the truth in love? This evening is an opportunity to take an inventory of your words and an inventory of your relationships? Are you tempted to flatter? Or are you taking the difficult step of speaking the truth in love? So that's point one. 
The words of the wicked are full of the deception of flattery and boasting. But the wicked aren't the only ones who get to speak in this passage, are they? In the first half of the psalm, we've heard what the wicked have to say. But now God speaks. Verse 5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Though the godly and the faithful have dwindled down to nothing, the poor still have an advocate who will speak up for them. God has seen the injustice done to the poor and the outcry of the oppressed, and he will arise to see that justice is done. Um, it's important to notice the concern for the poor here. And why is it that we've gone from talking about deception to talking about the poor? You know, what, what's the connection here? Sometimes we have to kind of ask that question when the, the Psalms can jump pretty quickly from one topic to another. Well, I think the reason is that it's easier for those who have power to lie and to be believed. Their power gives their words weight. That's because it's the way of the world to side with the powerful. It's what people tend to do. Um, and when lies, or treachery are, when lies and treachery are rampant, it's the poor that end up suffering the most. Just remember the parable, the story of Ahab and Naboth, if you remember it. Um, Naboth has a vineyard, right? King Ahab wants his vineyard. Uh, King Ahab tries to get him to sell it, but he refuses. It's his family inheritance. So Ahab's wife Jezebel gets the royal seal, and she arranges for witnesses to falsely accuse Naboth uh, for cursing God and the king so that he can be put to death, and then his property can be taken. You see, the one who holds the royal seal has the power to lie with devastating consequences. But though the world may side with the rich and powerful, God sides with the poor. And over against the deceiving words of the wicked, God speaks his own words, and it is his word that will prevail. Verse 6 contrasts God's word with these false words. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was preparing my sermon. I find it interesting that when the psalm is contrasting God's word with these false words, that it chooses to say God's word is pure rather than just saying it's true, right? I mean, it is. God's word is true. But um, what is it that gets brought out by specifically saying it's pure? Um, what does it mean that God's word is not just true, but pure, or perhaps true in the sense of being pure? Well, the picture this gives is that God's word is not mixed with anything, right? Mixed is the opposite of pure, especially if we're talking about refining metals, which we have here, right? God's word is like the silver that's refined in a furnace to remove all of the dross and the impurities. So God's word is unmixed. It's not mixed with falsehood, and it's not mixed with sin, this presents quite the contrast to the double heart of the flatterer that we heard about in verse 2, right? A heart with mixed motives. God's words are fully true and righteous. He doesn't say one thing and think another. Um, God's words being pure means that they are sinless. They're not just factually true, they're ethically upright. Um, we saw in the previous point how this passage challenges the temptation in our culture to believe that words and truth are fluid and that their meaning is ultimately up to us. But there's another tendency in our culture, perhaps a reaction to that, to say, no, words are, and truth are a fixed, impersonal reality. Perhaps you have heard the quote, the facts don't care about your feelings. 
And there's, there's some truth in that quote, right? I mean, uh, sometimes we do, we do need to have it pointed out that our feelings are wrong. But the idea of an ultimately impersonal truth is an unbiblical idea. You see, if God is ultimate truth, then truth is ultimately personal because God is personal. And God does care about human feelings, right? He cares about the suffering of the poor, for instance. So when we say that God's words are pure, we're pointing out that they are true in the deepest sense. They're not just factually correct, but they are right and good. God is not just the great Snopes.com in the sky, a fact-checker sifting truth from error without any concerns for how it affects human beings. God's words aren't just true, they're also loving. What's more, God's words side with the poor. God speaks a word that defends the poor against the lies and falsehood of those bent on destroying them. Okay, so how do we apply this second point to our lives this evening? Well, ask yourself, where do you need to trust the purity of God's word? Are there situations in your life where you are the victim of deception? Has someone lied about you, whether a coworker or someone you thought was a friend? Does it seem like they've just gotten away with it? Or perhaps you are hurting for somebody else this evening, a friend who's been lied to and exploited. Maybe your heart is just broken over the injustice in the world, over the plight of the poor and the marginalized and all of the lies that oppress them. The truth this psalm has to reveal to you tonight is that there is a God who speaks, a God who speaks pure words, words that are beyond the manipulative and deceitful words of humans. And this God is one who has entered into the fray against the lies and deception in this world. He is a God who will not allow the poor to cry out forever without an answer. There is a God who will bring every hidden thing to light, who will turn over every rock and undo every deception, who will bring all of us into the honest light of his truth. We have a God who is true, though every man be a liar. And he's spoken to us in his word, the Bible, so that we won't be trapped by these lies, but instead can be remade according to the perfect standard of his truth. He's given us this book that I hold in my hands. He's given us sermons and preachings so that we're not left to ourselves for what to think about poverty and oppression, but that his truth would be proclaimed. You can open it up and read about his concern for the truth and his defense of the poor. God's word gives you an infallible assurance of his determination to defeat evil and redeem the world. So if you're in a situation this evening where you're tempted to despair that justice will be done, where you're tempted to think that the truth will never come out, um, I want you to hear God speaking to you in this psalm, telling you in his own pure words, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So that's point two. Though human words are empty and deceiving, God's words are pure. But we shouldn't just stop there. For God's words in this passage are not yet his ultimate word to humanity. For that, we need to look onward to Jesus, the word of God, made flesh. And so in our third point, I want us to consider what it means for Jesus to be God's ultimate true word. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus is the Word of God, the Word who was with God in the beginning. 
Jesus is God's word, plain and simple, a perfect image of the Father, even before he ever becomes God's word to us. And yet he is also the word who became flesh, full of grace and truth. And later on in John's gospel, we hear Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus doesn't just reveal the truth of who God is. He himself is that truth. When we see the truth of God, not just in what Je- we see the truth of God, not just in what Jesus says, but also in who Jesus is in his life, death, and resurrection. So what do we learn about God by looking at this ultimate word? Well, in the Jesus who comes near us in flesh and blood, we see the God determined to reveal himself in his true word. In the Jesus who patiently teaches his disciples, we see the God who speaks pure words of truth. In the Jesus who is a poor wanderer and has nowhere to lay his head, we see a God who sides with the poor by becoming one of them. In the Jesus who drives the money changers out of the temple for exploiting the poor, we see the God um, who opposes the oppression of the poor. In the Jesus who won't let the rich young ruler compliment him without challenging the idol- his idolatry of riches, we see a God who won't be flattered. And in the Jesus who gives up his life on the cross for his people, we see a God who doesn't use people but loves them instead. In the Jesus who rises from the dead, we see the God who will not let a false, unjust verdict stand. And in the Jesus who promises to return again, we see the God who will, in the fullness of time, destroy all oppression and remove all falsehood. So what does it mean for you tonight that Jesus is God's true word? Well, first, if you are in Jesus, if you believe in him, it means that God has spoken a word over your life. He's spoken, let there be light, into your darkness. He has spoken, sleep or awake, into your spiritual death. And just as his first word at creation brought the whole world into being out of nothing, so his word to you in Christ brings you to life without doing, you doing any work on your part. That means that your salvation does not rest on your works, not on how true and honest you've been, but instead on the true word, Jesus Christ. In your union with him, you have received his perfect pure record in place of your history of lies, deception, and flattery. Secondly, if you've been united to God's true word, he won't let you live in your lies. He didn't come just to forgive you and leave you, but he came to set you free from the reign of of the devil, the father of lies. He came to bring you out of the realm of darkness into the realm of light. There's a challenge here as well as an encouragement. Uh, The challenge is that you have a high calling, a calling to honesty, a calling to leave behind your old ways of deception and to walk in the truth. But there's also an encouragement, because as much as you will fail in that calling, as much as the darkness still remains in your heart, God nevertheless has promised to stick with you, to be at work in you by his Holy Spirit, protecting you and purifying you through his word, so that you might be presented spotless on the day that Christ returns. And so I want to leave us tonight with this promise from our psalm, the promise that God will keep and guard us, that nothing can take us out of his hand, even our own disobedience and failure. So in closing, hear verse 7 of our psalm as God's own promise to you that he will never leave you or forsake you. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation 
forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your, your Son, your true Word. We thank you for his life on our behalf of, behalf of perfect honesty, purely and perfectly revealing who you are in his life and works and death and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit opening our hearts, showing us uh, our errors and falseness, and pointing us instead to your grace, your mercy, your truth. I ask that you be with us this coming week, that you would help us to see the beauty of your truth, that you would help us to trust in your words, that you would help us to see, seek you as our master instead of seeking to be our own master and the master of our words. And I thank you for your promise to stay with us, watch over us, and guard us until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.